The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's pray and ask God to bless our Sunday school. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I'm a mere man, a sinful man, standing to open your word up to my fellow brothers and sisters. I'm weak and I'm needy. I pray that you would uphold me and help me to honor you and to honor your word. I pray that you'd help everyone here to listen and to honor you and honor your word. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified, not only in this class, but in all the classes this morning. And we look forward to worshiping you together. We do pray that you'd bless everything that we do today for your glory, for the salvation of the lost, and for the the good of your people. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We all know Solomon. David's son, the king of Israel. And I'm sure most everyone here knows that Solomon authored the book of Proverbs. But Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes and the book called the Song of Solomon. This morning I want to use a small verse from the Song of Solomon as a springboard for our practical theme. And that small verse is the little fox's spoil the vine. In the Hebrew copies of the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon is entitled Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. It means the greatest song Solomon ever wrote, describing the dearest bond between God and his people Israel. The Greek text of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and the Latin Vulgate call it the song. And the Syriac version is entitled The Wisdom of Wisdoms of Solomon. In this book, Orthodox Jews see the human relationship of love between a man and a woman depicted in the Song of Solomon as a metaphor or allegory for the relationship between God and Israel. Some Christian scholars believe that the Song of Solomon is merely depicting the heights of intimate, affectionate love between a man and a woman, shown forth in Solomon's marriage with the Shulamite woman. But most Reformed scholars that we would respect see the Song of Solomon as a symbolic book of the love and intimacy between Christ and his bride, the church. The Son of God and his bride, you. It's amazing if the only thing that comes from the today's class is encouraging you and motivating you to read the Song of Solomon, that'll be a worthy, a worthy goal. Because in there you see this intimate desire and pleasure and delight between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, which is depicting the love and delight Christ has for his people. And it's almost embarrassing to read the Song of Solomon as you think about how much Christ actually loves you and the way that he loves you. It's, it's amazing. We see in the Song of Solomon how Christ loves and delights in his bride 
And the bride prizing Christ as the sweetest and most satisfying experiential communion one can ever know. We could take much time scanning the scriptures for references to this wonderful theme, but just a little appetizer to our main meal this morning. Open your Bibles to Psalm 45, please. I want you to see Psalm 45. This theme of Christ and his bride is really littered throughout the Old and New Testament. It's everywhere. Notice the title in my Bible is The Glories of the Messiah and His Bride, A Song of Love. So as I read this and you follow along, think about you and Christ speaking to you. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The king in verse one is our Lord Jesus Christ. You are fairer than the sons of men. That word fairer means beautiful. You are more beautiful than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. We see that verse alluded to in Luke 4:22. Verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Indeed, in Hebrews 4 we learn that his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 4, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I think of Revelations, Revelation 6-2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness in the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And here we see uh, an allusion to Hebrews first, uh, ver- chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. That reminds me of Ruth and Boaz. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people people also and your father's house so the king will greatly desire your beauty that's you the church the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your lord worship him this reminds us of isaiah 54 5 for your maker is your husband the lord of hosts is his name and your redeemer is the holy one of israel he is called the god of the whole earth and the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift the rich among the people will seek your favor the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace 
Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers, it shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. That reminds me of 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, whose own special people, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Now, other passages throughout Scripture could, we could point to to look at Christ and his church. I'm not taking liberties with the Bible as I read this to you and make these connections because the entire Bible, every single page, is about Jesus Christ. He's the object of every single page. So I'm titling our Sunday school class today, The Little Foxes, which comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. It reads, catch us, or seize the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. So we have this wonderful relationship with our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we don't want that spoiled. We want to delight in him and have him delight in us. So let's think about the little foxes that spoil the vines. These little foxes that come through our horticulture here, our land, our vineyard, these little foxes are hard to see. They take away the tender fruit. They hold back and delay the growth of our fruit. They chew at the bark and they dig up the roots. I believe the little foxes are symbolic of all that would spoil and damage the church so that they do not bring forth the fruit that's expected by Christ. Satan wants to destroy the work of God in his vineyard. Thankfully, the church will never, ever be destroyed. But it can be damaged by the little foxes. I believe these little foxes also are the enemies to our communion with Jesus Christ. Those things that harm and hinder the fruit of the fruit that is born from the communion that we share with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Among the many little foxes are the sins that creep in almost unnoticed and spoil the vines and take away the fruit. Pride in the church can be such a little fox. How can you recognize pride? It's very sneaky. It's not like adultery or stealing. It's not the type of sin that you normally would be brought before the church for church discipline. How about a critical attitude? What's so bad about that, a critical attitude? So many little foxes can spoil the vine. Covetous thoughts, slander, bitterness, envy, wrath, combative attitudes, too high an opinion of yourself, one's own thoughts condemning others, self-love, personal agendas, or anything that disrupts the unity of the church. 
Oh, how the devil delights to use these sins to bring about disunity among the brethren. What about staying home on the Lord's day so that you might labor for more money or that you might entertain yourself? These little foxes undermine the fellowship of the church and hinder your communion with Jesus Christ. Maybe your little foxes are friends that lead you away from the precious Savior. May it never ever be said of me or you that our words and our thoughts or our actions lead ourselves or anyone away from Jesus Christ. We might classify the little foxes under three categories. Our sins of thought, our sins of word, and our sins of actions. These may be described as heart sins, tongue sins, and behavior sins. Our heart sins only can Our heart sins only can be seen by God. They're secret sins. In Psalm 51, David wrote this in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Heart sins like resentment, pride, sexual lust, these are the little foxes that spoil the vines, that take away the fruit, God sees them even though they're secret to our family and to our friends. Moses wrote this in Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Tongue sins. God tells us in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Oh, how destructive our tongue can be. May the Holy Spirit help all of us to obey God's word in 141.3, Psalm 141.3, which says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So much harm can come from an unruly and undisciplined tongue. The little foxes of a lying tongue, a critical tongue, a tail-bearing tongue, damages our communion with Christ and cuts off spirit-wrought fruit-bearing and destroys Christian unity. Paul writes to the Ephesians, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for, ne- good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is a powerful verse, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Also, our sinful actions can be pesky little foxes that spoil the vine, hindering our spiritual growth. These are sins we commit that others can see Maybe an outburst of anger causing us to slam the door. Or maybe a quiet evil like silent treatment so that we can punish another image bearer of God. Or what about just a mean, rude, inconsiderate look or gesture with your eyeballs? The eyes are the window of our soul. When we're unkind or harsh in our treatment of others, our relationships suffer and we bring much harm to the testimony of Jesus Christ and his church, his bride. 
These little foxes spoil the vines. They deprive our lives of the fruit that the Holy Spirit desires to produce in and through us. Sin is is always harmful and always sinister. The unregenerate man or woman or the backslider and those undergoing personal declension will give way to these kinds of sins. We must stop and seize the little foxes and mortify sin, kill those little foxes, replace the sin with opposite virtue. This we can only do with God's grace and help. We can't do it in our own strength. So I want us to think about the opposite virtue compared to the vice. When we kill the fox, we can't just leave it at that and walk away from the vineyard. We have to kill the fox and replace it with a virtue. So I'm just listing here the opposite virtues that we need to seek Christ by the power of the Spirit through his word to put on Christ and put on virtue. Instead of thoughtlessness, we're thoughtful, we're careful. Instead of being neglectful, we're responsible. Instead of accusative, we're thinking the best of others. Instead of intolerance, we cover sin. Instead of being discontent, we're content. And instead of judgmental, we're encouraging. Instead of domineering, we're gracious. Instead of procrastinating, we're diligent. And instead of resentment, we're forgiving. This is supernatural, spirit-wrought, virtue this doesn't come natural and even if it seems like the unsaved are are carrying these virtues with them what's in their heart what's in their heart their heart is dead spiritually dead in sin so their motives are selfish their motives doesn't come from a redeemed heart that's been humbled before the cross of jesus christ instead of indicativeness it's compassion Instead of laziness, to be industrious. Instead of idleness, to be working. Instead of cowardice, to be faithful. Instead of joylessness, to be joyful. To be prayerful. To be helpful instead of slanderous. Self-controlled instead of full of sinful anger. To be thankful and to be respectful. My hope is that through this class, God is pointing out to you in your own conscience the little foxes that are spoiling your vines. Because as I got ready for this class, I saw a lot of those creatures in my vineyard that I need to kill. Generous, productive, loving, patient, kind, humble, truthful, applauding instead of nitpicking. Sometimes we like to nitpick others. We, we get the speck out of their eye and we got this big two by four in ours. Resistance, resistance to service, that's supposed to say. Resistance to service. Instead being ready and wanting to serve. What's better than to serve our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us? Instead of complaining, appreciating. For the sake of time, I want to, I want to um, 
kind of run through this. I, I think I might have brought this to you before. This is the characteristic or the nature of sin, backed by scripture verses. Um, I know I brought it to the North group, and I, I think I may have brought it in one of my earlier Sunday school classes about a year ago. But this acronym, DEAD, that sin is deceitful. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter three, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So we're, we're called here to help each other. It says, exhort one another daily while it's called today. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. We're all susceptible to it. It deceives us. And we must be careful. That word hardened, that you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, the original Greek word there is, is um, it's uh, scler- sclerono, scleruno, which has to do with sclerosis or the hardening of of your heart, the hardening of your arteries. Our, our word sclerosis comes from that. So we must admonish one another and exhort one another. The man who indulges sin increasingly thinks he can get away with it because his heart is hardened and it's not soft to God's word and to the Holy Spirit. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 8. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, but because God is slow to anger, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Believer, indulging in your sin strengthens your love for the sin. It hardens the whole soul in obstinate refusal to put away that sin. The writer to the Hebrew tells us how to prevent such a sad state. We need to love one another and look out for one another and care for one another. Let's go on to the next one, enslaving. Not only is sin deceitful, it's enslaving. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So we're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer in a state of sin where sin reigns and rules over us but we still have remaining sin. We still fight remaining sin. Romans 6, 17 and 18, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As sin hardens, so it overpowers and entangles and catches those who indulge in it. It grows stronger when indulged until it takes Sinners further and further, more than they ever dreamed of when they first committed that sin. Nevertheless, there's hope for sinners. Paul says that through the gospel, Christians have been emancipated from the slavery to sin. You don't have to sin. In Christ, we have a new master. We now serve God and righteousness. Let's jump down to the next one, third, sin is alienating. 
It's not only deceptive and enslaving, it's alienating. Paul writes to the Ephesians again, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. If you are in Christ, you are the righteous, even though you may be backslidden or even though you may be inconsistent in sweeping your garden of all these little foxes. Psalm 66, 18 and 19, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me He has attended to the voice of my prayer. In these three passages, we see that when we sin and rebel against God's word, the Lord is far from us and will not hear us. But when we seek him in humble prayer and turn away from our sin, he's quick to commune with us and to delight in us because of the cross. He will hear us and he will draw near to us. The last one is sin is destructive. That's its nature. It destroys. It decays. It pulls apart. Psalm 31.10, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. Why? My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Psalm 41.4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And we know God is great in mercy, slow to anger, full of compassion. Proverbs 5.22, his own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of sin. May God, by his Holy Spirit, Warm your heart to the mercy that God has for his bride as you think about these little foxes that are spoiling the fruit that God wants you to have. Greg Nichols remarks on the, on the destructive nature of sin. He says this, sin is inherently harmful. Inherently harmful. It tends to the destruction of sinners when we indulge in it. It weakens our soul. It drains our joy and peace from the soul. It shrivels up our hope. It weakens the whole inner man. Further, due to the mysterious interaction of body and soul, a soul weakened by sin saps the body of energy and strength. My strength fails because of my iniquity. It entangles and afflicts those who live in it. It withholds blessing and good from those who serve it. It's like a boomerang. It comes back to those who throw it at others. It is the result of God's personal judgment of sin. It's a result of God's personal judgment of sin. It's not just like a a force out there. It's it's, it's, It's the result of God's personal judgment of sin. God loves us. He sent his son for us, our our bridegroom. Imagine if your spouse was out doing something sinful and wrong. You wouldn't just stay home with a clicker and 
Let me watch some TV while my wife is out, you know, whatever. No, you'd be jealous. You'd be, you'd go after her. God is a jealous God. It is the result of God's personal judgment of sin. Sin is and will ever be harmful and destructive. Every single sin, the big foxes and the little foxes. Since God stands opposed to sin and committed to visit it with judgment, men cannot sin and get away with it. You can't. Even as a child of God, he's your father, and a father loves his child, and therefore he disciplines his child. The only way to deal with the little foxes is to forcibly seize them and kill them. If the little foxes are not put to death, they'll grow into bigger foxes and wreak more havoc in your vineyard. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In his book, Personal Declension and Revival in the Soul, Octavius Winslow calls his readers to examine themselves under the careful scrutiny of six witnesses. So he wants you and I to bring each of these six witnesses to stand on the witness stand and to examine us. He implores the backslider or struggling believer to examine and identify where it is in particular that they are weak and most needy. Where in the vineyard is there the most abuse by those little foxes? Where have those foxes made inroads? So first he calls the weakened Christian to summon conscience. Conscience, please sit on the witness stand. He wants us to ask ourselves how often and in what ways are we silencing or ignoring our consciences? In what ways are you sinning and sinning and sinning without paying attention to your conscience? Your conscience is like a referee inside of you who blows a whistle whenever you violate God's holy law. Do you pay attention to God's whistle or have you been silencing your conscience? The next witness he wants us to summon to the witness stand is God's word. How have you been using this means of grace? God is so graciously provided us, his adopted children, with a resource that we can commune with him, where we can delight in him and he can delight in us. So bring the word of God onto the witness stand. Is it daily? Is it every other day? Is it once a week? Or is it once every two weeks? When do you read it? When do you meditate on it? When do you feed upon it with great love and great desire? Like I did for that roast beef last night that Janice made. It was tender, cooked perfect. She rubbed some good stuff on it. Do I love the word of God as much as I love that roast? The next witness he wants us to summon and question is the throne of grace. How frequently do you pray? Or to put it negatively, how frequently have you been refusing to approach the throne of grace despite the fact that he has cleared the way by the blood of Christ, his son, 
and he calls you to come boldly to him. How much have you undervalued Christ? The next witness that we're to bring to the witness stand. The Song of Solomon reveals to us a beautiful picture of Christ's love and desire for his bride. You, the church. Listen as I read a few verses from chapter four of Christ's love poem for you. You are all fair, my love, or beautiful. That's what Jesus says of you. You are all fair, my love. You are beautiful, my love, and you are because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are, you are perfect in God's eyes. You're seated at the right hand with your brother, Jesus Christ. God has fully justified you. He's paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And now he wants to commune with you. And in order to commune with you, we can't grieve the Holy Spirit. We have to just repent and just believe and come back. You are beautiful, my love. That's what Christ says to you. And there's no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Senir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. God is saying that of you because of Christ's work in you. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How beautiful, how fair is your love? My sister, my spouse, how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like fragrance of Lebanon. Now I brought, I brought you the rated G part of the Song of Solomon. There's a PG and there's an R and there's even maybe, maybe a little bit more than the R on some of the verses. God wants us to understand that he desires this intimate connection and communion with us. I had the privilege of marrying Rebecca and Anthony yesterday and I told Anthony he needs to love Rebecca like Christ loves the church. Now there's no way he can do that but what a great goal for us as husbands to love our wives sacrificially even, even to write poems like this to them so that they don't think that they're just our cook and our laundry person and our homemaker but they know that we delight in them, that we want to bring them to the throne of Christ and, and have them enjoy this communion with Christ. We want to share that with them. We want to honor God by honoring them. Knowing how much Christ loves you and has done for you and is doing for you even right now as he makes intercessory prayers for you, how will Christ answer when you ask him, have I valued you in the way that is fitting for your glory and honor. What will Christ say on the witness stand? How much time have you spent with Christ, adoring him, speaking with him, learning about him, singing and worshiping from the hymnal or from Getty songs? 
or whatever you like to sing. Now the next witness for this self-examination is the Holy Spirit. How deeply has he been grieved by your secret sins? How deeply has he been grieved by your public sins? The last witness of the six now as we finish our examination of self is God himself, our gracious heavenly father. Have you robbed God of his proper honor and worship? How often do you worship him in song? How often do you thank him? Do you think of him often? I like to say that sometimes to my wife. I say, I'm having frequent and affectionate thoughts of you. Even when I'm at work, or even when she's far away. How often do we have frequent and affectionate thoughts of our Father? Do you think of him often? Do you take him for granted? Remember, every good gift, every single gift that you have, temporal and spiritual, comes down from the Father. So we should show gratitude to him and to love him and to obey him. Now, the only way to kill the little foxes is to humbly rely upon the grace that is in Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. This is the answer right here in in a nutshell, in general. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. But a good man, a Christian who's in Christ, will be satisfied from above. That's the only place that we can go to rectify this vineyard full of little foxes. It's the only thing that we can do. Our satisfaction has to come from above, not horizontally. The horizontal things are gifts and blessings, but they won't fill our greatest need. Only Christ can fulfill that. I love this quote from John Piper. It's a famous quote, you probably know it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we're feeding upon him and how we think. And, 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 and not just in our mind, I was, as I was getting ready for this, there was, I forget who it was, but he was talking about even you pastors, you're busy serving, you're counseling, you're preaching, you're going on trips, you're doing this, you're doing that, and your mind is filled with systematic theology and you're managing and administrating the, the, the affairs of the church. But he said, where's your heart? Where's your heart? It's not enough to have God in the mind. God wants our affections. He wants our deepest longings and desires to be for him, to be single-minded, single-hearted for him. Otherwise, all that other stuff that we're doing, if we're doing it and not having warm affections for Christ, we're doing it in our own strength. It's like we're, it's like we're going down the highway and we've taken our foot off the gas. That gas, the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ which fuels us, we just, we're just coasting. And it looks fine to everyone. We're still going 55. We're driving the car. Everyone thinks we're fine. But we're not relying upon Christ and his spirit. We're just kind of running on empty. And it's only a matter of time that we'll fall. Augustine wrote this, and I said this the other last evening, 
you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So as a Christian, as someone who's been born again and saved by God, you've got nowhere to go. Nowhere to go to get rest for your soul except Christ. There's nowhere else. So you can wallow in your sins and watch all the little foxes eat away at your vines or you can come to Christ and repent and believe again. The way we came into the kingdom of God is the same way that we walk faithfully in the kingdom of God. It's through faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. It's like one step repentance, the next step faith. One step repentance, the next step faith. Because we still have remaining sin, we still have the enemies of Satan in the world, and we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We can't. We'll fall on our faces. We need to stay connected to the vine. To, to, to the vine. We're the branch. And we can't bear that fruit unless we're in communion with Christ. We don't have the time to go through all of these verses, but each of these verses on the left prove what's written on the right. That I love the picture of the prodigal son. He's away in the far country sinning, but he he begins to apprehend the mercy of his father. He begins to believe that maybe my father will accept me. And so he turns from his sin and he goes back to the father believing that the father will accept him. I'll just, I'll be a servant in his house. I'm tired of my sins. I want to leave my sins. I want to come back home to my father. And so he gets up in faith and he repents and he walks back home. And his father, and and what's wonderful about the story is Jesus tells it so that we'll understand the love of the father. And if if I'm right, maybe Dr. Bob, you can help me. I think it's the only place in the entire scriptures where God the father is shown running. That he's running towards a wayward sinner, his son to embrace him and kiss him on the neck. That's all God requires of us, is faith and repentance. And even that he gives to us. But as Christians, we have to wake up. We have, you know, in salvation, it's monergism. It's all God. We're dead, he wakens us up. But in this walk, once we're saved, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a cooperation. We work and he works in us. But if we don't work, we're not keeping our end of the bargain. He's given us all the resources. You know, we're in a holy war. That's really the bottom line. We're in a holy war. And until we're glorified, we we have to fight. We have to fight. Fight for God-glorifying marriages, fight for God-glorifying labor, fight for God-glorifying worship, fight for God-glorifying salt and light in the community. Let me end with just a word from Spurgeon because no one can say it like he does. Ephesians 4.15, grow up into him in all things. 
And I do want to, I want to give that caution that if you're a young Christian, you've been saved for a year or two, this is a marathon. We grow like an oak tree. You're not going to be an oak tree tomorrow. If I, if I share with you what I did from age 21 to age 31, it was a mess. I was all over the place. I had so many little foxes in my vineyard, it was sad. It was a, it was a mess if you would have peeked over the fence and saw my vineyard. But you fight the good fight, and you have a part to play. God works in you as you work outwardly. Many Christians remain stunted and dwarfed in spiritual things, so as to present the same appearance year after year. No upspringing of advance and refined feeling manifest in them. They exist, but not grow up into him in all things. But should we rest content with being in the green blade when we might advance to the ear and eventually ripen into the full corn in the air? Should we be satisfied to believe in Christ and to say, I'm safe, without wishing to know in our own experience more of the fullness that's to be found in him? It should not be so. We should, as good traders in heaven's market, covet to be enriched in the knowledge of Jesus It is all very well to keep other men's vineyards, but we must not neglect our own spiritual growth and ripening. Why should it always be winter in our hearts? We must have a seed time, it is true, but oh, for a springtime, yea, a summer season, which shall give promise of an early harvest. If we would ripen in grace, we must live near to Jesus. That's the answer, to live near to Jesus in his presence, ripened by the sunshine of his smiles. We must hold sweet communion with him. We must leave the distant view of his face and come near to him as John did and pillow our head on his breast. Then shall we find ourselves advancing in holiness, in love, in faith, in hope, yea, in every precious gift. As the sun rises first on the mountaintops and gilds them with his light, and presents one of the most charming sights, the eye, of, the eye of the traveler, to the eye of the traveler. And I thought of this when I was riding through uh, Chattanooga. It was at the time of the day where the light was shining. And you, there were shades and bright lights on the mountains. I'm like, wow, this is not like Florida. This is gorgeous. As the sun rises first on the mountaintops and gilds them with his light and presents one of the most charming sights to the eye of the traveler, so it is, so is it one of the most delightful contemplations in the world to mark the glow of the Spirit's light on the head of some saint who has risen up in spiritual stature and bears the luster of his radiance up high for all to see and seeing it to glorify his Father, which is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you know us through and through. You know our greatest needs. You know our weaknesses. We do pray that you would help each one of us draw near to Christ and to experience the sweet communion that comes from his gentle and lowly heart. We love you and we pray in Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed. We hope you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.